Hey everybody, Magnus here. I'm going to tell you a story. It was the night of Thursday, May the 5th, 2011. I got to tell you, man, I was in a sort of bad mood. Basically, I just dumped this chick. Uh, yeah, what happened was this, this chick and I, we just started up together, I don't know, like maybe a month or two earlier, right? And... Well, the Thor movie was coming out pretty soon, and she wanted to take me to see it, right? Now, by itself, that wasn't a big deal. I mean, that's a sweet thing to do for somebody, right? Taking them to a movie that you know they want to see. The issue, though, is that I told her that I'd already made plans with a friend of mine, and, you know, I mean, I said that she was welcome to come with us, but... I was planning to see it with him. In the first place, he and I always saw comic book movies together at midnight. It's a tradition that goes back a hell of a long way. It was so common that he and I didn't always even talk about it anymore. We both just presumed upon the other's time. That's how often we saw movies together. In the second place, though... He and I actually went a little far out of our way to make real plans this time. Nothing was taken for granted. We planned this whole shit out way ahead of time. So this wasn't something that I could easily back out of, which is why I invited her to come with us, rather than canceling on, uh, on him and seeing it with her. She threw a fucking fit over it. Now, maybe I've just been around the block too many times. Maybe that's it. But, like I said, we'd been seeing each other for a month or two, and, um, hello? That's not a relationship. That right there is probation. There's no commitment expressed or implied during the first 60 days. Anyway, so whatever happened, happened, and I dumped her. So, my friend and I met up together for pizza before Thor, uh, the movie Thor, was going to start up. And I got to tell you, man, I was in a sort of bad mood. I mean, I knew I'd done the right thing by dumping that fucking lunatic, but nobody's really happy when something like that happens, you know? top of all that, my friend brought this chick that he just started up with not so long ago, and I'd never met her before, but, you know, she seemed pretty cool. My friend's roommate also came along, and he mentioned that he was meeting some chick at the movie theater. I didn't really know much else besides that. It was just some girl that he knew. And because you guys don't know him, let me just say, that's fairly typical of the roommate guy. You know, it seems like he's always shacking up with somebody, and then dumping her a few weeks later. I didn't think much about it at all. But if I had, I, I guess I would have figured that whoever this girl was, she'd probably end up being just another one of his flavors of the month, the roommate's flavors of the month. So, after pizza, off to the movie theater we went. And we met the chick that the, the uh, roommate was looking for near the uh, concession. And she's kind of short, so originally I didn't even notice her when we came into the lobby. But while we were sitting inside 
the theater waiting for the movie to start, she and I struck up a conversation. It came out that she's a huge Smallville fan, just like me. I mean, Chick even had a season 10 wallpaper on her phone. It could have been any Smallville wallpaper, but no, she chose a season 10 picture. Now, for those of you who don't know, that shows taste, all right? Clearly, this chick has impeccable taste and breeding. In fact, I later learned that there's just really no room to criticize any of her choices. Well, except maybe that Rob Granito thing, but hey, who knew, right? Anyway, so after that, she let slip that she's a Lois and Clark fan, too. And when it came to the battle of the Jimmy Olsons, she'd come down firmly on Justin Whalen's side. Just like me. On top of all that, she collects comics too. Just like me. So throughout this whole thing, I'm thinking, hot damn, man. This is a, this is a total fangirl that we're dealing with here. She's somebody that I've got to get to know better. Now, the whole time, I don't know if any of you have ever been through an experience like this, but the whole time, you're thinking this is all too good to be true. I mean, come on. What are the odds she'd be into skinny ginger dudes with attitude problems? But even if she was, how could someone as awesome as she is be single? And if she is single, I mean, what? Is it just a rotten personality? Is that it? I mean, why would a chick this cool ever be single? But hey, she seemed available. She loved her some Superman. She was clearly a major sweetie, and yes, she filled out a pair of jeans rather nicely. I mean, I'm a guy. Let's not overlook the obvious here. Well, it's like the saying goes. Somebody's got to win the lottery, right? No reason it can't be me. And it seemed like we got along pretty well. She felt it too. I could tell because she waited for me in the lobby after the Thor movie was over. Stacy. Her name is Stacy. So I'm thinking to myself, oh yeah, she's mine. So, flash forward a little bit to Friday, May the 20th, 2011, and we're on a date. First, we had dinner at El Corral, my favorite Tex-Mex place ever in the history of always and forever because their food was fucking awesome. And it pains me that they've closed down now, but what can you do? After that, it was back to my place to watch Superman the movie. Since we'd both seen it a zillion fucking times, it wasn't something that we had to watch in complete silence with rapt attention, you know? We could talk to each other, talk about the movie as it's going or just whatever else, and neither of us, we knew we wouldn't be we wouldn't be missing much of anything because we'd just seen it so many times. Now. Normally, I'd never take a chick back to my place on a first date, but hey, I was pretty broke at the time, so one does what one must. But anyway, but anyway, yeah, so after the movie was over, we hung out and shot the shit for a little while, and then I drove her back to her place and I kissed her goodnight. To any guys listening to this, always kiss her on the first date. Always. But she decided she wanted two kisses, and honestly, who am I to refuse such a sweetie? It's been three years since then, and she's my beloved now. Stasis Magnus. Happy anniversary, sweetie. I love you. Always.
pay your attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I love comics, movies, and TV shows. But one show in particular is near and dear to my heart, and that is Smallville. Now, periodically, I do episodes dedicated to Smallville and just talk about several episodes from a particular season at a stretch. The idea here is to chart Clark's growth from simple farm boy to world's greatest superhero. You see, I kicked off my podcast with an episode in defense of Smallville. I included a lot of points that I thought were worth mentioning in order to defend Smallville from what I believe are uh, just a bunch of ignorant criticisms made by a bunch of snooterati fucking hipster fans who just as soon wipe their asses with a comic book as read it. I mean, yeah, sure, they've seen Superman the movie 90 fuck jillion times, but that's not the same thing as having an awareness of Superman stemming from the comics. At least not in my opinion. So, that was how I started my show, but I eventually realized that defending Smallville from unwarranted attacks wasn't really the same as singing the show's praises from the rooftops, so that's what I'm here to do now. So, on a season-by-season basis, I intend to talk about Smallville pretty much from beginning to end. I intend to tie subsequent developments in later seasons back to what's come before as I go along. Now, originally, I planned to do a commentary for every single episode of the show, but even I don't have that kind of patience. And... And besides, uh, a commentary would necessarily deal with the episode at hand without necessarily giving the benefit of taking a look back at the larger season. I mean, you're pretty much dragged through the story at a certain number of frames per second. And when it's over, it's over. And you don't really have much of a choice to expand upon a point or what have you. So there's that to think about. But I guess the other thing is... I didn't want to have to rewatch and then comment upon every single episode from the dreaded season four. I mean, let's be reasonable here, you know? I don't think I could revisit the dreaded season four without a lot of alcohol involved. Still, I gotta say, I'm kind of proud of myself in all this. At the time that I record this, 
I have analyses similar to the one that you're about to hear. I've got analyses ready to go up through the, about the halfway point of Smallville's fifth season. Now, all of that has yet to be recorded, don't get me wrong, but I've at least got the the notes of it knocked out and ready to go. So, so there's that. Anyway, last time I left off with the discussion about Season 1, Episode 7, Craving. And my main point about that episode was that it was the first time Al Goff and Miles Miller, the series creators and executive producers, had stopped to just take a break and, you know, catch their breath and just tell a fun adventure in the universe they'd established without introducing some new element of either the the general Superman mythos or the Smallville-specific mythos. And how they no sooner set the whole thing up than they realized they'd have to rethink their storytelling methods because the fans, the characters, and really the series itself dictated there needed to be something more than done in one episodes. And that's pretty much where uh, things uh, left off last time. Now, before we get into it this time with... Uh, episode 8, uh, Jitters. I've got a, just some administrative bullshit I want to go through here real quick. I'm just going to go ahead and announce that next week I'll begin a new miniseries dedicated to movies. And not just movies, but sequels. And not just sequels, but sequels that I think have been tragically, woefully misunderstood. Now... Normally, something like this would last uh, six episodes, but this one is only going to be five episodes because I'm going to be building up to my epic, epic, epic 50th episode. I've got something very cool in mind for the 50th episode, and I'm hoping I'm going to be able to pull it off. We'll see. Anyway, so that's that stuff for now. I'm going to take a break. Be right back after these messages. Sure is great to be back to from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast.com. Is it .com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no .com. Forget that. <laughs> So from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. 
No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman one half month at a time. Every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com. This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all, an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by the war. This July 28th, In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, presents All Quiet on the Western Front. I'm Tom Panneries. And to commemorate the centennial of the First World War, I will be dedicating a special episode to Eric Maria Remarque's all-time classic war novel. Along with the look at the novel, I will discuss two film adaptations and then take a quick glance at poetry and songs of the war to end all wars. That's this July 28th at incountry.podomatic.com. This is Erica Durant. You're listening to Magnus talk about Smallville. Okay. We're back now, continuing our review of Smallville Season 1 in borderline pornographic detail. The first episode on deck this time out is episode number 8, Jitters. To prove that my memory can play tricks on me sometimes, I thought this episode originally... I originally thought this episode continued the fun-in-this-new-universe angle from Craving that I mentioned last time, but... That isn't completely true, but I'll come back to that later. The episode starts on a pretty sweet note. Um, Clark and Martha joke about dinner, and then Clark literally does the heavy lifting while Jonathan fixes his truck. Chores like this are what Clark's most accustomed to doing with his powers. Even now, the idea of using his powers to protect other people or for that matter, to even go on the offensive to bring some kryptonite freak down, is still a new thing for him. But more importantly, this is the time in life that Clark's a most, he, he's most accustomed to living. In episode 6, Hourglass, Clark loses his shit over the prospect that he could feasibly outlive everybody he knows, loves, and cares about. Hallmark moments like this one at the top of Jitters are kind of an indication of what he's become so attached to. It's a good reminder that Clark isn't jumping at phantoms or dreaming up imaginary boogeymen. He loves his life, his family, his friends, and his town. And anything that threatens to change things for him is cause for panic. You see, 
he's addicted to the stability of the quiet life on the Kent farm. And honestly, who can blame him? But the day will come when things change for him, and he has to be ready to accept those changes when they come. In fact, I dare say that goes directly into his character for the entire rest of Smallville's run. Clark's fixation, almost obsession, will become a major issue for him to deal with in future seasons. And again, the reason I, I dig on this just quick little moment with Jonathan is because of what it implies about Clark's day-to-day life before all the kryptonite and the mutants started making life hell for him. Speaking of Hallmark moments, the first several scenes after the opening credits show Clark throwing a party that ends up getting way out of hand. Not only is it a lot bigger than Clark originally intended, but even Lex gets in on the act by including a free fireworks display. He also took care of the Smallville deputy's office and made sure they wouldn't bust up Clark's party. I mean, what a guy. This, again, ties into Lex's seemingly never-ending generosity and benevolence to Clark Kent. Lex is treated and will treat other characters with disdain and even open hostility, but Clark's the one character on the show that Lex will literally move heaven and earth to make happy. Jitters gives us our our first glimpse of Metropolis, and it's interesting to note that there's no subtitle on the screen to alert viewers that this is, in fact, Metropolis. The episode moves from Smallville to a big city, and the viewer is left to infer that the action has moved to Metropolis, specifically. That's not a criticism, nor is it a praise. It's just a little something-something I noticed when I was re-watching Jitters. Another thing to consider is that Metropolis is placed in fairly close proximity to Smallville. Now, I gotta tell you, this has been no source of bother for some people because apparently they think Smallville was always located in Kansas and Metropolis was always located someplace else, probably on the East Coast. Well, mm, no. No, that's not right. Back in the pre-crisis era, but especially in the Bronze Age, Smallville was basically a suburb of Metropolis. Now, that may be overstating it, but they were very close to one another. That's the point. The idea of Smallville being a town in the Midwest, specifically Kansas, was something Richard Donner invented for Superman the movie. John Byrne is the one who brought it into the comics. Now, yes... Smallville, as a television show, is definitely breaking new ground in terms of placing Metropolis inside of Kansas. No doubts there. But the idea of the town of Smallville being within spitting distance of Metropolis isn't exactly unique to this TV show. All they did was take a pre-crisis concept that apparently shitloads of people don't know about and bring it into the modern day. As ever... Don't call yourself a purist if you don't know what the word means. Anyway, so Jitters is interesting and notable for twisting the established Smallville formula just a little bit. Up to this point, the kryptonite-infected victim became the episode's antagonist who would subsequently go on a murder spree. But that isn't what Earl Jenkins is really up to in Jitters. He hasn't been endowed with powers by kryptonite. He's been poisoned by it. His illness takes the form of violent tremors, the effects of which are slowly killing him. He's not specifically out for revenge. 
Instead, he wants to accomplish an, an objective. He needs to expose Luther Corp's Level 3 and the related kryptonite experiments to the public so that he can hopefully bring Lionel Luther down with him. Now, <clears throat> Earl's goal is morally laudable. It's his methods that cause all the problems. And Clark's objective isn't so much to defeat Earl as attempt to prove that there is no Level 3. But in the course of confronting Earl, it comes out that Level 3 is all too real. The conflicts and jitters come from diverging points of view and differing agendas. Because of that, resolution by super speed or brute force just isn't an option. Lionel Luther is committed to making sure that the secrets of Level 3 stay secret. Earl wants to expose them. Lex wants to show his father and the world that he can lead. And Clark? Well, Clark just wants to get everybody out of this alive. On that basis, little or nothing would be gained from Clark body-slamming Earl and turning him over to the police. There's a problem here that needs to be resolved. Earl taking hostages at the Luther Court plant isn't the disease. It's a symptom. Because of that, victory in jitters is hollow and fleeting. Now, sure, parts of Level 3's existence do eventually get exposed, but there's no reason to think that it'll affect Lionel or his company in the long term. Lionel knows how to speak to the press and give a plausible deniability. His attorneys can handle the rest. Earl Jenkins won, sure, but how long is he going to live to enjoy it? Jitters ends on another down note. Clark rescues Lex and Earl from the methane gas filling up the Luthercourt plant, and then he brings everyone out to safety. Jonathan and Martha are understandably overjoyed to have Clark back and tearfully hug him. Lionel pretends to do the same thing with Lex as a media photo op, but Lex knows the difference. Lex is only a, a, a prop for Lionel's corporate spin machine, and he knows it. Lex jealously watches the Kents happily embrace each other and then go home as a family. Now, this is important. This is more important than you may think. I mean, y yes, it, it, it does say something about the characters, but there's a bigger issue in the future that that'll, it'll depend heavily on everything that happened in Jitters, specifically this ending. But... Jitters is even more significant than that. Jitters introduces the idea of kryptonite poisoning to the public. This is new. The general public has never had rock-solid proof about how dangerous kryptonite is. Earl Jenkins is the first case to be brought to the media's attention that this shit's dangerous. And this is important to understand because so far, Smallville's taken place in a fairly... Uh, grounded type of setting. It's not realistic per se, but so far, Clark and Kryptonite are the only things that intrude upon an otherwise fairly realistic world. And because of that, the concept of meteor rocks causing bizarre mutations and poisonings, or even endowing certain people with impossible superpowers is completely unheard of right now in the Smallville universe. So, putting this shit on the front page is a much bigger deal than you may think. Jitters, as an episode, also introduces Level 3 to the audience. Again, 
This is big. Level 3 is a major subplot. There will be a lot more said about it uh, in the future. But beyond all that, Jitters marks the first time that Clark's encountered a life-and-death situation where his powers won't immediately save the day. And the reason for that is because this isn't a completely black-and-white conflict. The problems go a lot deeper than that. Sure, Earl used violence to achieve his ends, but is he really a villain? And sure, the Luthercourt plant got taken over, and a lot of property was damaged, but is Lionel Luther really a victim? Jitters marks the first occasion where Clark learns that there's often a disconnect between a person's true inner character and his public actions. Nothing is what it seems in Jitters. And as obvious as it may seem, there are always levels of motivation in any type of crisis situation. What Superman has to be able to do is respond to hostile threats in an appropriate way. I mean, it's all well and good for Batman to swing into action, beat the shit out of everybody, and let the cops sort it all out. Batman's a vigilante. Superman, though, is a hero and a champion. It's not necessarily enough to take the bad guy down. There are many cases where people need help with their problems. Superman has to be capable of meeting people on their level. Jitters is significant, then, for being the first time Clark's ever needed to do so. And he passes the test with flying colors. The ability to understand motives and agendas is a useful thing for Clark to become acquainted with now because that leads us into episode 9, Rogue. This episode's unique in a lot of ways. For one thing, Rogue is the first episode in Smallville's history to not have any sort of kryptonite uh, antagonist. That's a big step in this show's evolution. Each of Clark's opponents so far have been in some way or another mutated by kryptonite. Rogue presents Clark with a much more grounded enemy. But second, Rogue's the first episode to have an extended trip into the past. Goff and Miller would revisit the idea of flashback-oriented episodes in future stories, but this was their first salvo, and man, what an episode. Cameron Dye was amazing as Detective Sam Phelan. He absolutely nailed the scumbag angle of the dirty cop. Now, as I've gone through all of these retrospectives, I've tried to stay focused on writing and avoid what I consider to be more technical stuff like acting and whatnot. But, dude, you can't talk about this episode without mentioning what a great job Cameron Dye did in playing Phelan, the sleazeball cop. Die was, he was menacing, but underneath it all, you could, you can tell that once upon a time, Phelan was probably a good, honest, dedicated cop. He wanted to protect people, but what Phelan eventually decided was that unethical, or rather ethical, professional and moral boundaries had to be crossed if he was going to be effective with his job. This is implicit in the character, but it's explicit in a comic book story. I've never figured out uh, to what degree the Smallville tie-in comic book was canon. And I'm not talking about season 11. Before the Smallville season 11 comic, there was a tie-in comic book that told stories set 
between various episodes. In the case of Phelan, Smallville number four has a short story where Clark reflects on the trip he and Phelan took from Smallville to Metropolis. They were forced to make a stop to render aid, and for one brief moment, Clark saw the man that Phelan used to be. Another thing to consider is the fact that Sam Phelan is a cop. Being a police officer carries a certain power and authority over others. Phelan's an example of power corrupting. Now, up to this point, we haven't seen Clark really be tempted to misuse his powers. Even, even his wish to play football has more to do with fitting in at school than using his powers to unfairly get ahead. Nevertheless, Clark had to face what can happen when people abuse their authority and violate the public trust. One of Superman's leading attributes is his unending benevolence with his powers. And Superman, it needs to be said, could take over the entire world tomorrow. And odds are nobody would be able to stop him. And on some level, the citizens of the world surely know that. But they respect and accept Superman anyway because he's never once used his abilities to do anything other than rescue people. In a perfect world, people would inherently trust and believe in police officers until they prove by their own actions that they're unworthy of the public trust. On that basis, Superman's expectations are that much higher. It's telling that Superman can meet those expectations. Sam Phelan provides a very clear object lesson of what can go wrong when power is abused. Rogue resumed Goff and Miller's universe building by implying a little bit more about Lex's sordid past during his reunion with Victoria Hardwick. This subplot will come to a head later, but the core elements are introduced here. Goings on with Victoria Hardwick and Sir Harry represent Smallville's first real pass at developing an ongoing narrative, and it largely worked well. True, it'll be resolved in only three or four episodes, but that's not the point. The point is that Goff and Miller had to, they'd come to understand the necessity to tell stories in a more serialized fashion. As I've said, Originally, Smallville was conceived to tell episodic stories that would ultimately end with Clark becoming Superman. However, what Goff and Miller have admitted to realizing after a while is that an episodic format wouldn't work for Clark becoming Superman. Stories needed to become more serialized in order to have maximum effect. Still, should be no, it should be underst understood that no matter what realizations Goff and Miller had later, Smallville was still conceived to tell episodic stories. And that's a format the show never completely broke away from. Now, by later seasons, storytelling in the form of season-wide arcs was very much the norm. And oftentimes, episodes would be incomprehensible without understanding the context in which they took place. But that doesn't change the fact that Smallville, on some level, was still something of an episodic show. And that's not a weakness. And it's, it's not particularly a strength, either. It's just a unique characteristic. Nothing more, nothing less. No matter how much 
Smallville would ultimately try to sever ties from being a sort of done-in-one type of show, it never completely managed the task. Anyway, on to other stuff. Obviously, the real meat of Rogue is is Phelan targeting Clark and attempting to conscript him into his very skewed war on crime. This is the first time Clark's met an antagonist with true legal authority. To be fair, Phelan Clark, he, he caught Clark on a good day. Up until Jitters, Clark had faced mostly simplistic, black-and-white situations. Someone with superpowers tries to hurt Clark's friends, so... Clark knocks him into the middle of next Tuesday. It's tough to get any simpler than that. But the conflict with Earl at the Luthercourt plant back in Jitters showed Clark that not every situation is so simple. Not everybody can be dealt with by force of arms, by raw firepower. Some enemies, like Earl, need a kinder, gentler hand. They have deeper problems that superpowers can't handle. Other enemies, like Phelan, are renegades against the very law they claim to enforce. And it's interesting that Clark never truly vanquishes Phelan. Other people are forced to do that for him, but Clark's takeaway lesson is the true importance of keeping his powers a secret. There are people out there who would co-opt Clark and use him for their own purposes. Now, Clark probably had an intellectual awareness of that, but that's a far cry from being nearly devoured by it. Jonathan and Martha Kent feared Clark being taken advantage of and victimized. They warned him about it and expressly taught him that his powers should be kept under wraps. It doesn't seem like Clark needed to be told why. He accepted their guidance without question, but if Clark, ne- if Clark wondered why the Kents were so paranoid... Rogue would have been the perfect remedy. On top of all that, Clark's conflict with Phelan necessarily alienates him from his friends. None of them know his secret, and so none of them can really help. And since Phelan is the first person beyond Jonathan and Martha to discover the truth about Clark's abilities, it's understandable that Clark doesn't want word getting around, especially right now. Phelan's an enemy that a grown-up Superman might even might even struggle with. Now, maybe he maybe he wouldn't. Maybe he would struggle less. Maybe he wouldn't struggle at all. Maybe it would be just as much. Maybe he'd be just as vulnerable against a crooked cop as teenage Clark was. It's tough to know. But on balance, Jitters and Rogue form an, this kind of interesting duology in, in Clark's character growth. They stress the importance of being able to put his emotions aside in order to resolve conflicts. Some of the world's problems can be dispensed with if Clark uses the right amount of super strength at just the right time. But sometimes, there are problems and conflicts that can only be dealt with through other means. Clark can't super punch all of life's problems. Now, had Clark reacted purely out of emotion to Earl or to Phelan, the outcome would have been very different, and I dare say very unpleasant for him. Jitters and Rogue teach Clark that punching some problems works just fine. But it's vital that Clark be ready to outwit some opponents or help other opponents with their problems. So far, 
Clark's been an apt pupil in the superhero boot camp this first season's been putting him through. Next up, episode 10, Shimmer. Some good character development here in that Clark's tempted to make his move with Lana now that Whitney's all distracted and shit with his father's illness. And to be honest, I don't think they ever even say what the fuck his problem is either. So, I guess Mr. Mr. Fordman's got a very nasty case of vague fluenza. It's common in a lot of TV shows and movies. I mean, shit. Aunt May spent most of the 60s and 70s dying from it, but Peter always saved her. For whatever reason. Anyway, Clark eventually decides it'd be kind of a cheap shot, so he decides not to do it. And honestly, (laughs) that's where Superman is a better man than I. You see, I'm not the most forgiving person in the world, even now. But I gotta tell you, I used to be a lot worse. Way back in the day, if you crossed me, I'd get even. It may take a day, a week, a year... Or whatever, but I'd eventually get even. Bet your ass I'd get even. I wouldn't break the law to do it. I'd never break the law to do it. But I'd settle all family business with you. Sooner or later. My record is ten years. It took ten years to get even with somebody, but I eventually settled the score. Now, it wasn't anything illegal, so don't call the cops. I didn't break any laws. I'm just saying that unintentionally, I found a way to settle his hash. Of course, one of the things that you realize in life, if you ever take revenge, is that revenge is a pretty fucking hollow thing. And what you eventually come to realize is that it's never worth taking revenge on somebody. Or, I guess if you have to have some kind of vengeance, living happily is the best way to do it. But honestly, Clark's totally within his rights to have one hell of a grudge against Whitney. I mean, if I'd been in Clark's shoes, you can rest assured I'd have put the moves on Lana. And not because I like Lana. Have you noticed I haven't talked a whole lot about her so far? And not because I like Lana, but because... Sticking it to my enemy would have been worth putting up with Lana and all of her bullshit. But Clark doesn't do it. Now, maybe it's his natural instinct, but maybe there's something else. Maybe it's the moral influence of the Kents. I don't know. But Clark decides he's not going to play hide the weenie with Lana when Whitney's going through all of his problems. It says a lot about Clark's character that he won't do that. I guess it says a lot about who I was as a teenager that I absolutely would have. So, hmm. Not only that, it says a lot that Clark would go so far out of his way to help, of all people, Whitney. I mean, look, it's it's one thing that Clark decides not to bang Lana just to piss Whitney off. That that would have been enough all by itself. Clark wins at life by that point. If Clark had... If he'd drawn the line at not getting Lana naked, he'd still be a better man than 95% of us. But what truly puts Clark ahead of the game is how willing he is to help Whitney in this episode. Now, 
Need I remind you that Whitney beat Clark up and left his ass tied to a stake in the middle of a field? I could totally see where Clark might have had a hard time letting that go. Anyway, it just, it says a lot about Clark. That's all I'm saying. So, apart from that, this episode does a decent job of continuing the Victoria Hardwick subplot. It won't be too long now before that gets paid off. Next. Next is episode 11, Hug. This is another episode that starts building to something. In this case, it's Chloe's feelings for Clark. I think it's always been implied that she has a crush on him, but this is the first time it's ever made explicit. And since we're on the subject, I was always surprised and, to be honest, kind of pissed that Clark and Chloe didn't really date in the first season. It just it felt like it was a good opportunity since Lana was preoccupied with her jock douchebag boyfriend. I mean, look, whatever, it's over and done with now, but... It's just, it's always felt like a missed opportunity to me. Still, this subplot does get some kind of payoff this season, and I guess there's that, but anyway. The reason this episode plays for me, though, is because it goes to Clark's character. Superman looks for the good in everybody. He's the one guy in town, Clark is, who believed Kyle Tippett could be innocent. And it's, it's not that Clark was being objective or unbiased. He simply wanted to believe the best about Kyle and found reasons to when he searched for him. Clark put his feelings about Lana aside to search for the truth. It's possible, and arguable, that Clark's just applying lessons learned from Jitters and Rogue, where appearances were always deceiving and nothing was what it seemed. Sometimes villains look like heroes, and heroes like villains. Clark wasn't ready to make any sweeping generalizations about Kyle Tippett. He just wanted to get all the facts. Another cool thing, though, is Clark not only looks for the best in people, he tries to motivate the best in them, too. And that's an important trait. For whatever reason, of all characters, Batman's started horning in on Superman's monopoly on inspiration, but it's important to remember that Superman wants to steer everybody he meets in a positive direction if he can. Now, you could see this as an extension of Jitters, where Clark understood that Earl had a problem and needed help answering it. What he didn't need was a fist to the jaw. In Jitters, Earl had to get answers to his questions. The truth had to come to light. In Hug, Kyle Tippett has to be motivated to be a better person and stop living in fear. So, in that sense, you could, you could see Earl and Kyle as kind of two sides of the same coin and that they need Clark's guiding moral influence to overcome their natural tendencies either to violence or to seclusion. Hiding isn't the answer. Kyle was perfectly happy to take his toys and go home, to hide his power from the world and live in a trailer in the middle of nowhere. Clark says, though, that it's not that easy. If you have power, you should use it to help others rather than live in fear. And it's kind of funny that Clark himself will need to hear that very thing in just a few seasons, but that's another discussion for another time. Episode 12, Leech. 
When I first saw the promo for this episode, I thought it was a potential jump the shark moment for the show since the idea of Clark, uh, of a Clark who's never even worn the Superman outfit somehow losing his powers to somebody else seemed just a bit too high concept, but I got to tell you it plays extraordinarily well. At first, I thought the basic concept of Leech was just too big for Smallville, but the execution of it proved me wrong. Plus, this episode once again shows the outside world is starting to become aware of the fact that non-powered humans aren't the only intelligent life on this planet anymore. Earl Jenkins started that trend back in Jitters, but Eric Summers takes it to the next level here in Leech. Eric and his little stunts would have been reported on by major national news outlets like CNN or the Fox News Channel. And understand, all the meteor freak stuff that's happened on Smallville up to this point, you could consign that to some type of urban legend or unsubstantiated gossip. Or in the unlikely event that there's a survivor... This is just tabloid stuff. And that's it. Nothing more. And oftentimes, there haven't been a whole lot of survivors this season. But Earl Jenkins, and especially Eric Summers, leave no room for excuses or plausible deniability. The real world's starting to take notice of the weird shit that goes on in Smallville, and I love that aspect. Again, future seasons are going to build on this and develop this concept. Stuff like this makes some of the directions Smallville goes in later on, not just logical, unavoidable. And it's worth remembering that the seeds of this were planted starting in Season 1. Now, as to the episode itself, I mostly knew Sean Ashmore as Iceman from the X-Men movies, but he seamlessly fits in with Smallville. It doesn't take Eric Long to end up on a lot of people's shit list. In fact, in a weird kind of way, Eric Summers is the fulfillment of Sam Phelan. Phelan's proof that power corrupts. Eric is proof that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Sure, Eric started off with pretty benign deeds and intentions. And I surmise the Phelan could say the same thing if he wasn't worm food. But in short order, Eric goes way overboard with Clark's powers, and before you can say faster than a speeding bullet, Eric's destroyed private property, assaulted his parents, assaulted cops, terrorized his would-be girlfriend, and pretty much made himself fucking public enemy number one. As always, the meteor freak of the week says something about who Clark is and who Clark isn't. Clark hasn't used his power to take, to take advantage or hurt people or anything else. True. The other meteor freaks up to this point have had a fairly limited power range when you, when you come down to it, so I guess you could argue that they had no choice but to keep a low profile. But Eric's different in that while he has Clark's powers, he's effectively unstoppable. He can do whatever the hell he wants, and there's really not much anybody can do about it. Clark, obviously, has never done anything like this. And honestly, there's a limit to how much of this you can assign to the Kents and their guidance. They always tell Clark to keep a low profile and to make sure that his secret stays secret. 
But the Kents never tell him how to use his powers. At no time does Jonathan Kent ever pull Clark aside and tell him to use his power to rescue people, or Martha tell him to fight supervillains. They never discourage him. But you'll notice it's pretty fucking rare when they encourage it. And that mostly comes as recognition of Clark's character. Clark works out how to use his powers all on his own. The Kents mostly only tell him to make sure he keeps a low profile. So, it's one thing that Eric makes no secret of having powers while Clark goes out of his way to keep it under wraps. That's definitely on the Kents. But Clark using his abilities specifically to protect other people? That's Clark's natural instinct. He doesn't think to use his abilities for his own ends. But Eric uses his powers for fame, glory, and, shall we say, personal satisfaction. So, apart from being different from Clark, Eric is positively scary by the end of the episode because there's just no telling how far he might go. Now, to move on to other things, I haven't mentioned the pop music in too much in these retrospectives, but... There are times when the songs are used to really good effect. Lifehouse is everything and the pilot is a good example. But the Bush song, Inflatable, used at the end of Leech, is another winner. It's used well in the episode, but it's, a, it, it's just a good song in general. And it's a great song with which to end the episode. It's, just, it's, it's a powerful moment. I dig it. I love it. So, Kinetic, episode 13. This is the Lost Boys episode of Smallville, where a bunch of has-been high school football stars recruit Whitney into their armed robbery crypto club. Whitney, in desperate need of someone to hang out with and drink beers with in a town overflowing with drunk high school football players, is easy pickings for him. Meanwhile, Lana tries to make sappy, emotional arguments to Lex why he shouldn't close the talon. Ultimately, she fails to convince him, but he decides to open her coffee shop there anyway because Lex wants Clark to get laid. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I know Lex says something else in Connecticut, but come on. There's no way Lex would give two shits about the coffee business if it wasn't for Clark. But if there's any chance... Clark might get some putang out of it? Yeah, Lex would probably be willing to cooperate. That's my view, anyway. So, apart from that stuff, this is another episode where Clark's faced with the morally gray. Whitney's new friends are a bunch of scumbag thieves. There's just no question about it. But honestly, Whitney himself was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he got used. Clark, once again, has to put aside emotion or the temptation to make snap judgments. As much as anything in Season 1, Clark has to learn not only how to use his powers to rescue people and fight supervillains and do shit like that, but he, he's also facing more and more circumstances where he has to decide when, and sometimes even if, to help people. Now... Try as they might, these are situations where Martha and Jonathan simply can't help Clark. In the end, he's the one who has to make choices. He bears responsibilities his parents can't even dream of. His success in making these types of moral evaluations have some reflection on the Kents. 
and how good a job they did raising him. But ultimately, Clark's the one who deserves the lion's share of the credit for the choices that he makes. Episodes like Kinetic underline the fact that Clark lives in a world where he's isolated from others because of his responsibilities and by the necessity to make choices only he can make. His judgment isn't always flawless, though. If anything, it becomes more fallible as the series progresses, but at the core of it all is Clark's desire to use his power to help others. It's not about beating up on people who can't defend themselves against him. Clark sincerely wants the world to be a better place for his being in it. A necessary component of that philosophy is the judgment of how, when, or if to use his powers. And so far, Clark's track record's pretty spotless. Partly that's due to Jonathan and Martha's nurture. But my view is that a significant part of it is due to Clark's nature. Back in Shimmer, Clark attempted to reconcile Whitney to Lana. It went against Clark's own desires and self-interest, but it didn't go against his nature. Clark felt it was just unfair to go behind Whitney's back and basically kick him when he's down by trying to boff Lana. But Clark goes beyond that here in Kinetic. Clark already has zero incentive to help Whitney. Remember I mentioned that Whitney beat Clark up, tied his ass up, and then left him in a field? Morally, Clark doesn't owe Whitney jack shit at this point. Whitney should thank his lucky stars that Clark didn't find him in a dark alley just so he could even the score. Because as we've established, I might have done that back when I was a teenager. But on top of that, Clark went out on a limb to bring Whitney back to Lana back in Shimmer, even though that ran counter to his own agenda with her. Now, it's one thing for Clark to not want to take advantage of Whitney's shit circumstances right now. But nobody says he has to be a mediator. But he helped anyway. But Kinetic is, is where Clark wins life. He's been a fucking saint so far, but in Kinetic, Clark actively goes to bat for Whitney and helps rescue him from his own piss-poor decisions. Instead of beating the hell out of Whitney, Clark beats the hell out of the people who took advantage of him. Yeah, that's what Superman would do. But is that really what you'd do? Or I'd do? Maybe. But I just doubt it. Again, as with Jitters and Hug, Clark's facing circumstances that require that he divorce his emotions from a conflict. He needs a clear head in order to make the right decision. Punching Earl... Kyle or Whitney in the middle of next week, that might have solved the immediate threat, but the larger problem would have been left on the table in each of those cases. Level three would have remained shrouded in secrecy. Kyle, an innocent man, would have gone to jail, and Whitney, a victim of pride and circumstance, would have had his life and future ruined. Clark's objectivity and willingness to work to solve problems rather than just end conflicts are tools Superman will need to do his job effectively. And Clark's learning how to do that very thing. So yeah, here we are. At just past the halfway point of Smallville Season 1. We're, we right now are at Part 2. 
Season one is going to have a third and a fourth part, after which, that's it. So, it just made more sense to just divvy things up that way, and then finish off the season basically in that, all in that fourth chapter. So, that's that. For the next Smallville show I do, for those of you who are watching along with me as I go through these retrospectives, I'll talk about episode 14, Zero, through episode 17, Reaper. And that show is scheduled to come out on Tuesday, July 15th, 2014. That's the plan. Anything can change at any time, but at the time that I record all of this stuff, that's the plan. Now, as to next week's show, I'm launching a new miniseries wherein I talk about movies. And not just movies, but sequels. And not just sequels, but tragically misunderstood sequels. So, next week, Scott Gardner is going to join me so that we can defend Spider-Man 3 in much the same way I defended Smallville in my very first episode, and the same way I defended Joel Schumacher's Batman in my very second episode. Thing is, though, it's only going to be a five-part miniseries. And now, normally, things like this are six episodes long. Anytime I do a miniseries, it's typically six episodes long. This one's only going to be five episodes long, though, and the reason for that is... Because during that miniseries, I'll start building up to my epic, epic, epic 50th episode. A totally unprecedented amount of ass is going to be kicked in that 50th episode. War and Peace wasn't as fucking epic as my 50th show is going to be. Test screenings of my 50th episode have reduced professional fucking hockey players to tears because they all realized... They'll never be as manly as I am. As to the women, several of them have gone completely fucking sterile after previewing my 50th episode because this much bare-chested manliness was just completely foreign to them. My 50th episode is going to be like porn for your ears. My 50th episode will have more guest stars than Spider-Man, Maximum Carnage, but none of that storyline stupidity. My 50th episode is going to be so big that Merriam-Webster will have to create a completely fucking different metric to define the word awesome in future printings of their dictionary. All of this is a long way of saying that's why the movie sequel miniseries can only be five chapters long. Because the 50th episode would have been the sixth part. And that's just no bueno. But whatever, it's a five-part miniseries. You'll live. For right now, though, I'm going to take a break, and I'll be right back after these messages. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night. Searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. <coughs> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster. But you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil. You get it, you get it. 
Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? Yeah, 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 play it. Come on, play it loud. Play it loud. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Illogic. Foolish emotions. A constant irritant. And transpiral freaks! Two! Belong in the circus. <laughs> right next to the dog-faced boy. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. It's a super prize package worth $9,388. Money. This isn't the biggest bag over the head. Punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! Ow! And now, together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts, Scott Gardner. He killed the police officer for Christ's sake. You're goddamn lucky to kill him. And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away from me! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. Looking at me? Yeah, because she thought you're some kind of freak. Now come on, let's go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! You're gonna shoot. I said shut up! It's a man out! A man out! Two true freaks.com. Okay, I'm back now, and, uh, God, it's so fucking early here, but, um, I've got a little bit of feedback, um, as far as Smallville is concerned, uh, basically, for the, I'm gonna peel back the curtain a little bit and say, at the time that I record this, the first part of my Smallville retrospective, which is to say, episode number 36, which is, Magnus talks about, uh, Smallville, season one, part one, that only came out a couple of days ago at the time that I record this little feedback stuff right here, but already I've started getting some... Well, there's, there, there, to be honest with you, there was al- always quite a bit of interest about this on Facebook, but I've actually started getting some a little bit of feedback here. And this email comes, th- this, this email comes from uh, Fanboy MS Prime. It's entitled Smallville Begins, dated March the 25th, which is the same fucking day that the show came out right that the first part of magnus talks about smallville that's the 
you know, so he listened to this same day and then wrote this same day. So that's pretty cool. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, Fanboy Miss Prime writes, Hey, Trennis, like the episode covering the first seven episodes of Smallville, but I have to correct you on one minor point. The fact is that in the Golden Age and Burns Man of Steel that Clark is a member of the high school football team. Well, I think he was in the Golden Age. I know he killed a guy by accident in a college football game <clears throat> he was playing as they were still copying straight from Hugo Danner at that point, and it happened to him in Gladiator. So Clark wanting to be on the football team isn't quite as out of character as you'd think it is. Though, given what some coaches do to their players and how many end up severely injured or crippled for life, you'd think they, they had a team of Kryptonians or Daxamites. I'm going to put your email on pause here and just say a couple of things. Uh, first up, yeah, I think it's you know pretty well known that uh, John Byrne turned Clark Kent into a jock, and uh, that's you know pretty pretty well understood. I didn't know that he played football in the Golden Age too. I'm not saying you're wrong, but the only thing I can think of was there was a time when Superman in the Golden Age, and I mean early, early on. I mean like we're talking. First couple of issues of Action Comics. That's how early we're talking, right? There was a point when Superman went undercover as a pro, uh, pro football player or college football player. It was something, I forget. And, uh, and honestly, I don't remember much else to the story. I just remember that it happened, right? Now, if what you're telling me is that it was established canon that he played football in the, um, in the Golden Age... I don't really have enough of a working knowledge to either uh, a working knowledge of the Golden Age to either agree or disagree with that. I don't know, but I will say though that I that that was totally off my radar. I didn't realize that. So there you have it. Getting back into Prime's email, he writes: It's interesting to learn of Clark's adjustment curve to using his powers. Something even the Superman and Superman the animated series had in the beginning as he had to as he had to learn how to hold a plane correctly. I'm gonna put your email back on pause and say honestly that is one of the um the kind of nice things about Smallville that I, I really do cherish. And I, I've always just kind of had a sort of a thing for young Clark mastering his powers. I don't know why, but that's something that's always kind of... <clears throat> Actually, I do know why, I, uh, or at least I have a theory anyway. I'll get into that in just a bit, but that's just something that I've always been interested in. And if I had to put a finger... If I had to, you know, just put a finger on it and say, you know what, maybe this is where it started. For those of you who don't remember, um, way back in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a, uh, a Superboy... TV show tie-in comic book, right? And basically the Superboy TV show was apparently some kind of uh, success when it comes to TV ratings and stuff, sufficiently that DC Comics decided, you know what we need to do? Motherfucker, we need to make a Superboy spin-off comic book. Now one of the reasons this is all this is sort of an interesting time to do that is because John Byrne had re rebooted uh, Superman back in 1986 with the Man of Steel miniseries. And 
during that time, it had been kind of drilled into our heads that there was no Superboy. There was no Superboy. There was no Superboy. And then that ended up creating problems for the Legion of Superheroes. And so somebody dreamed up the pocket universe idea where basically there was a Superboy, but it's not the Superboy of the mainstream continuity. So there was no Superboy. There was no Superboy. There was no Superboy. And then basically once he'd been established in the canon, they really can't keep Superboy around. Basically a pre-crisis type of Superboy. They really can't keep that in continuity. So then they had to figure out some kind of a way to get rid of him and his entire universe. So they killed Superboy off in uh, the pages of Legion of Superheroes. There is no Superboy. There is no Superboy. There is no Superboy. Right? And then fucking... Here comes a Superboy TV show, so I guess there is a Superboy after all. I don't know. Anyway, so I guess what I'm saying is, it's first of all, it's just an interesting fucking time for that to happen. You know, after all of those years of being beaten to death, kind of relentlessly, about the fact that there is no Superboy, there is no Superboy, there is no Superboy, right? So there you go. Now, as it happens, the tie-in comic book for the Superboy TV show... There was a moment, I, I want to say it was in the second issue, where Superboy turns around as this uh, gun mall chick shoots him, right? Now, I guess he did not know the full scope and extent of his powers, and so he had, like, in the moment, he just panics. He's like, oh my god, I'm going to fucking die, like right here, right now, right? And he didn't realize that he was... Invulnerable. Now, I'm not really sure how somebody could make it to the age of about, I don't know, 19 or 20 or however old he's supposed to be without realizing that, you know what, motherfucker, I am impervious to all physical harm. I mean, I can run with it in Smallville because, you know, they can't, they have to start the narrative somewhere, right? So I can accept it there, but it's just, it was sort of hard to believe that, you know, he could go. Like, to the extent that he's operating in public, in uniform, he's calling himself Superboy and all that stuff, like he was in this comic book, and yet he somehow doesn't know that he's indestructible. So, I don't, I don't know what to tell you there. So, but nevertheless, what it, the fact that that doesn't really make a whole lot of story logic... I still thought that was just a really fucking cool idea, because I thought, well, you know what? you wouldn't necessarily know what all of your powers are. You know, the only way you'd know or have any kind of idea of what you can do is if you just really push yourself and figure out what your limitations are. That's pretty much the only way you could do it. And that just kind of fucking worked for me. Now, it doesn't work for me insofar as, you know, Superboy's concerned, because I happen to think that when he, when that motherfucker puts the cape on for the first time, he needs to be ready to go. He needs to know what he can do, what he can't, all of that, right? Or at least have a pretty good idea, right? <clears throat> he may not know necessarily the ins and outs of everything, but he needs to have a pretty decent idea of what all his powers are. And I think a major fucking superpower like invulnerability shouldn't be something that he has to find out about late in life. So, But that's one of the things about Smallville that just really fucking works for me. Like, every once in a while... Clark gets a new superpower, and then he has to figure out a way to fucking adjust. And 
Uh, <clears throat> honestly, that just it, it plays for me. It it just it really works. And honestly, I understand. At least I think I understand why this wasn't a bigger fixture of uh, the animated series. I wish it had been, but which is weird considering what I just said about putting on the cape and knowing all uh, all about your powers and stuff. You know, I understand. At least I think I understand. That you you don't necessarily want to have that as too much of a narrative point, especially since you don't know what order these episodes are going to be broadcast in. But still, it's just it feels like it's a concept that got introduced in the animated series and then just as quickly swept under the fucking rug, never to be seen or heard from again. So I don't know. So there's that. But anyway, to get back into uh, your email though, uh, uh, Prime writes. And the Smallville Clark doesn't have the knowledge of the Justice Society or that he's not alone having superpowers and trying to do good with them. Says a great deal about him, even if he's not sure what he's going to do with it. Well, that's it for this time. Yeah, still working on it. DC Presents eventually will turn up one more. Um, thank you, Prime. I really appreciate you taking the time to write in. Now, as to the Justice Society thing... That really was a kind of a late addition to uh, Smallville. That that really did kind of come along pretty late in the game. And it's one of those things I really wasn't sure if the show was ever going to uh, address. And I guess, you know, I don't want to sp- you know spoil too much of my comments for the Justice Society episode. But I've kind of got... Um, well, suffice it to say, I've got opinions about that, and I guess we'll revisit them years from now when I finally do get to Season 9 <clears throat> and talk specifically about Absolute Justice. But there are parts of that show, that that, that particular episode, that really worked for me, and there were parts that did not work for me. And so... <clears throat> so... Yeah, that's pretty much... Actually, to get into that any further, it's just... It's kind of risky. So, but yeah. No, um, I understand where you're coming from on all this, and I agree, but it's just... You know, there are parts of, like I said, that absolute justice thing that... um, I enjoy the episode in general. And this isn't, I guess, giving away too much. I enjoy the episode in general. I thought it had a lot of great ideas. But there were some things that I thought just didn't really work out all that well with it. And that's about as far... Maybe as I need to get into it, <clears throat> without spoiling uh, the episode that I plan to write later on, or I, I plan to record later on. So I think that's pretty much that. So uh, yeah, so I think that's that's basically it for this time. <clears throat>